Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On September 10th, 2000, Leah Hackett put eight-year-old Zachary Bernhardt to bed at 11 p.m., She would struggle to sleep herself, so she went out for a walk and a swim. When she returned, Zach was gone. Over the years, fingers would point at Leah as being the person responsible for Zach's disappearance. This would be until a local pedophile would take credit for taking the boy. Then a year after Zach was last seen, a photo was discovered showing a young blonde boy bound with his wrists and ankles bound with duct tape. The boy looked eerily similar to Zachary Bernhardt, but it's been never confirmed to be the case. Zach's case being the longest-running Amber Alert for the state of California. This is Zach's story. The eight-year-old Zachary Bernhardt disappeared from his bedroom in this apartment complex behind me 20 years ago. Loved ones say the lack of closure makes the years even harder. It's like an emotional roller coaster. You go up and down, up and down a lot. Family members have never stopped looking for Zachary Bernhardt, and time hasn't made the pain any easier. Here we are at the 20-year mark, and still no closer to knowing anything more about his disappearance than we do from the first day that he disappeared. Clearwater police say Zachary's mother called to report him missing just before 5 a.m. on September 11th, 2000. Investigators say the disappearance is suspicious. He didn't even have a working bicycle, so to say that somebody at eight years old gets up and just leaves at 4.47, I think would be outside the norm. Over the last two decades, police have worked hard, pouring over evidence and following up on hundreds of leads. But there has been no trace of Zachary. You don't want to live this nightmare. It's a nightmare. It's not something you want to do. Family has never given up hope that Zachary will be found safe. The third grader who vanished is now 28 years old and could look something like this. I believe that he was taken from his home by an abductor of someone that has watched him go back and forth to school from where he went. Zachary's missing person case is still open. The FDLE lists him as one of seven children missing and in danger, the longest-running Amber Alert in the state. His family has found peace, but they still want answers, knowing it's not too late to solve this mystery. Someone out there knows something, and somebody's going to come forward. Zachary Michael Cole Bernhardt was born December 18, 1991 to mother 20-year-old Leah Hackett. No father would be listed on his birth certificate. Some contemporary news articles would claim that Zachary's biological father didn't even know Zach existed, that a one-night stand resulted in Zach. But without a father involved, Leah chose to give Zach the surname Bernhardt, her mother Carol's married name. Carol would later state in interviews that she took the role of father in Zach's life, and the two were very close. At the time of Zach's birth, Leah would tell her live-in boyfriend, Jason Paul Hibbard, 
that he was in fact Zach's father. But after Zach's birth, a paternity test proved this was not the case, and the relationship ended, with Leah moving back to her mother Carol's home for a while. Leah would soon start another relationship, this time with Robert Jacks III, and she fell pregnant quickly. She would move herself and toddler Zach to Ann Arbor. Lauren Victoria Jacks was born in 1994. Again, the relationship would break down and Leah would move back in with her mother with her two young children. June 1996, Robert met with Leah to take his daughter for a scheduled visit. Leah demanded he take both four-year-old Zach and two-year-old Lauren, as she had plans to go out clubbing that night. Robert had actually bonded with Zach and agreed to do so on the grounds Leah would return for him in the morning, but she never showed, and the police would be contacted. Because of this, a judge would award Robert full custody of his and Leah's daughter. For the next few years, Leah and Zach's life was much of the same. Leah would go from one abusive relationship to another, while Zach was shipped between family members, sometimes not knowing where his mother was. There was even several occasions they would report Leah missing after not being able to contact her for weeks. Zach would again be reunited with his mother in June 1998, when Zach was almost seven years old. They would eventually move to the run-down Lucerne apartments in St. Petersburg, as Leah was unemployed and had no income. In return to free rent and utilities, she managed the apartment complex. However, this arrangement would soon sour just three months later, and a physical dispute would break out with the landlord tearing Leah's shirt whilst trying to wrestle the keys from her grasp. Now, Zach would be witness to all of this, and from what I have read, unfortunately, this would not be the first time Zach would see his mother experience physical or domestic abuse. In this case, though, Leah would successfully request an injunction against her former landlord. There seems to be a trend again after this. Leah and Zach would move into an apartment. Leah would tell the landlord she had cancer and couldn't work. She was a single mother. She would try to garner sympathy. The landlord would give her some leniency with paying rent, either at a discounted rate or allowing Leah not to pay any at all for a period. But then holes in her story would develop, and Leah would fall thousands of dollars behind in rent and be evicted. This would happen over and over. Leah and Zach would move more than 11 times in 14 years. In early 2000, Leah and Zach moved to the Savannah Trace apartment complex on the 2600 block of Drew Street in Clearwater, Florida. They secured a ground floor apartment that was perfect for the two of them. For the first time in a long time, it seems like the little family were doing well. Leah was able to hold down a job and provide for her and Zach. Zach was attending the third grade at Eisenhower Elementary School. Teachers would later describe him as being intelligent and cheerful. He excelled at school 
and was liked by everyone, classmates and teachers alike. His grandmother would later state that Zach loved to garden. He had a passion for art and loved nothing more than going to the water park and, quote, zooming down the water slides, unquote. Leah was also seen as an active parent in the school community. Quote, a very responsive parent and Zach was her whole world, unquote. And Zach seemed to be responsible and respectful. Whenever he went away with friends, he would always let his mother know where he was going and always came home when she told him to. September 6th, 2000, five days before Zach went missing. Leah would be again notified that they were being evicted for not paying rent. I think this is important to say now. The not being able to make ends meet, paying rent and the moving around, this doesn't make Leah a bad mother. All the contemporary news articles we read through and all the media interviews we watched, they all said that Leah adored her son. Did she always make the best decisions? No. But this alone, this does not really send up any red flags for me. Zach would be last seen by a person besides his mother on September 10th, 2000, the day before he disappeared. Zach was playing outside by himself. A neighbour, Deanna Williams, she had a short conversation with the young boy. He asked her if he could come to a barbecue with her, and she said, not this time. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary with him. That night was nothing unusual. Leah and Zach had dinner together. Leah made Zach his favourite meal. Leah has the night off, so the pair cuddle on the sofa and watch movies together, with Zach finally going to sleep in Leah's bed at around 11pm. Leah, who was working the night shift in her job at this time, she was struggling to go to sleep. As someone who works nights, when you have a night off, it's almost impossible to go to sleep because that's not how your body clock works. After Zach went to sleep at 11pm, Leah watched TV and then went on the computer for a while. At around 1am, Leah decided to empty her garbage and got into her Dodge to drive to the apartment complex dumpster before returning back to the apartment. She went back on the computer for a while. Leah would later report to police that at around 4am, she went for a walk, trying to tire herself out. Now, in some reports, Leah left at 2am and was gone for two hours. However, in the disappeared episode on Zach, Leah left at 4am and was gone for around 15 minutes. So we are going to go with this timeline in this story. So at 4am, Leah leaves the apartment, leaving the door of the apartment closed but not locked. She said she checked on Zach before leaving and he was asleep in her bed. On the walk back past the apartment complex's pool, she had an overwhelming desire to go for a swim. She doesn't know why, considering she doesn't even like to swim. But regardless, she jumps into the pool with her clothes on and with no towel, and she swims from one side of the pool to the other before getting back out again and walking back to the apartment. 
Based on Leah's activities here, I would assume the 4am departure from the apartment is correct because a 2am departure and being out for more than two hours, that is beyond suspicious to me and is not consistent with Leah's behaviour towards Zach leading up to his disappearance. Regardless, after about 15 minutes, Leah walked back to the apartment. She is wet and cold. Walking past her bed on the way to the shower, she would later report not noticing that Zach wasn't there. She has the shower, and after this, at about 4.47am, this would be when she realised that Zach was no longer in the bed and nowhere to be found in the apartment. Neighbour Susan Dalton would later report to police that at 3am she went outside her apartment for a smoke. She would report seeing Leah pull into the apartment complex's parking lot in her black Dodge hatchback. The other neighbour, Deanna Williams, returned home from a night out with her boyfriend at quarter to four and she claimed that the Dodge was not in the parking lot. Now, as we have said in previous episodes, Eyewitness statements, they are not always accurate. Were they mistaken with the time? And were they led by news reports and their own biases against Leah? Or were they right on the money with the time? We don't know, but it's something to consider in this case. Around 5.15am, Leah went to Deanna's apartment and asked her if she had seen Zach that she had gone for a swim and when she returned, he was gone. Leah contacted the Clearwater Police Department to report her eight-year-old son missing. According to police, Leah sounded panicked during this call. She mentioned she left the door unlocked and this was all her fault. Within hours, a massive search was underway. Multiple units from the Clearwater Police Department and neighbouring counties, as well as many as 60 volunteers, performed a grid search of the area near the apartment complex. Woods and waterways located nearby were also searched, using all-terrain vehicles, watercrafts, divers, golf carts and a helicopter fitted with infrared sensors. Police would front the media, only saying the circumstances surrounding the disappearance were unusual. The search continued all day, until it was called off for the night at 6pm. Police would interview all nearby registered sex offenders and the neighbours. This is when Leah's neighbours contradicted her version of events, turning the police's suspicion onto her. They believed Leah wasn't telling them the whole story that she may have been lying to them. The media would accuse her of being involved, unfairly in my opinion. Leah would deny any involvement in her son's disappearance. For the record, though, police have never named her an official person of interest, let alone a suspect, but they would question her multiple times. So much of her story just didn't add up. Why go for a walk in the early hours of the morning, leaving your child unattended? Why go swimming when you said yourself you don't like swimming? Why leave the door unlocked? Leah would stick to her story, though, and be adamant that she knew nothing of where her son was. As part of the investigation, hundreds of leads were followed up, 
but there was no evidence as to what happened to Zach. The amount of resources that were put into this case, though, it's debatable. The police believed that Leah was somehow responsible, and the only push to find him came from the family who missed their Zach terribly. Even Leah seemingly gave up. Because of the media criticism and the public harassment, Leah would never take part in the search efforts, and she would only give one public plea. Due to all of this, Leah would move to Hawaii soon after Zach went missing, eventually remarrying and even changing her name. We will respect Leah's privacy in this episode and not say what this new name is. Leah Hackett has since remarried. In the spring of 2001, eight months after Zach went missing, a police informant came forward with information to the police. He claimed a man named Kevin Jalbert had told him he was a child murderer and was looking for a new victim. This was of interest to investigators because he was living nearby at the apartment complex Zach and his mother were living at the time of his disappearance. Police arranged for an undercover officer to track Jalbert and this resulted in Jalbert bragging to the undercover officer that he allegedly had abducted and raped more than a thousand children and killed at least five. He also bragged that he had abducted a child from the same apartment complex that Zach was living at when he went missing. This would escalate him right to the top of the suspect list, where he remains to this day, more than 20 years later. Unfortunately, Jalbert's sister would claim the man is a chronic liar and seeks attention, and the evidence tying him to the case is weak, and a lot of the details don't add up. Firstly, when he was bragging to the undercover agent, he pointed to the wrong apartment. Second, the clothing he described the child he allegedly had taken as wearing as being Scooby-Doo pyjamas and Mickey Mouse underwear. Zach didn't own either of these. He was only wearing boxer shorts when Leah last saw him. Thirdly, Jalbert's DNA did not match that found at the scene. At the time of his arrest, police found child pornography on Jalbert's home computer. It was also determined that Jalbert had visited a landfill two weeks after Zach's abduction. When questioned by the police, he would deny having any involvement in Zach's disappearance. But when given a polygraph, he failed it. However, at this point, we are all aware how unreliable polygraphs are, so take that with a grain of salt. Jalbert is currently serving a 40-year sentence for child pornography charges and in an attempt to solicit an undercover officer in a child abduction, assault and murder. He is eligible for parole in 2038. A year after Zach went missing, a photo was found outside a Colorado grocery store, 50 miles west of Denver. And in a situation that reminds me of another case, two strange photos found outside a grocery store, So much so I had to do a Google search to make sure I wasn't somehow confusing the two and these cases were actually connected. 
The case I'm talking about is the disappearance of Tara Calico. And for the record, they aren't connected, but I digress. The photo was of a young blonde boy, bruised with his wrists and ankles bound with duct tape. He is dressed in a red shirt, with a darker red collar and darker red piping on the shirt seams. The boy is lying on some rocks and pine needles. Now, the pine needles are not indigenous to the area where the photo was found, so somehow the photo was transported to where it was found that day outside the grocery store. When the photo was handed over to the police, their thoughts went straight to Zach. The boy appeared about Zach's age, about eight or nine, and bore a striking resemblance to the young blonde boy. Family members viewed the photo and they initially believed it was Zach, but after repeated sightings of the photo, they no longer believed the boy and Zach were the same. Now, unfortunately, due to rain in the area, no fingerprints or DNA could be taken from the photo, and no further information has been released publicly since. New Year's Eve 2001, 15 months since Zach was last seen. A five-year-old boy was abducted from the Savannah Trace apartment complex, the same apartment complex Zach was living at with his mother at the time of his disappearance. According to the young boy, he was playing in the playground with two older boys when his abductor approached them. The two older boys ran off, but the man managed to lure the five-year-old into his white truck with a promise of ice cream. The abductor drove the boy around for ten hours, sexually assaulting him multiple times leaving him for dead in a trash bin in Bushnell. An Amber Alert was issued and police frantically searched for the boy. Thankfully, he was found alive by a passing motorist. The police have publicly stated there is no evidence the two cases are linked, and frustratingly, just like in Zach's case, this abduction also remains unsolved to this day. On December 22, 2017, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement issued an unsolved Amber Alert for Zach, an Amber Alert that remains to this day. The National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children have released two age progressions for Zach. We will put both of these photos on our website and in our Facebook group. One in September 2009 of Zach at age 17 and another in February 2020 of Zach aged 20 years old. Theories in this case go several ways. Someone took him. There were never any complaints about how Zach was treated, no reports of abuse or neglect, just that the family were poor. A Google search does show that Clearwater, where Leah and Zach were living at, was a known hotspot for sex trafficking and child sex rings were not unheard of in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Especially when we're talking about a young blonde-haired boy with blue eyes. We know Kevin Jalbert confessed to taking a child from the same apartment complex and there was another abduction just a year later. Could an abductor happen to be there on that very day and at that very time that Leah left the apartment? Jalbert or someone like him? 
It would be almost too much of a coincidence for me, though. Too many ducks would have to be lined up for that to happen, in my opinion. The only way this could make sense would be if Leah did this somewhat routinely, and a local predator took note of this and waited for the next time she did to take Zack. More on to that, did Zack wake up while his mother was gone? Did he get scared and want his mother to find his mother? He went looking for her, and that's when he crossed paths with a person with nefarious motives. Considering there was no sign of a struggle in the home, this could be what happened. The last three motives have Leah being somehow involved. Zack running away in his own accord isn't mentioned as any likelihood. I would assume this is due to his age and him going missing in the middle of the night and no history of running away. For the record, his biological father, ignoring the fact he most likely didn't even know Zack existed, he wasn't living close to Florida at the time and he was never considered a suspect or person of interest. Firstly, Zack accidentally died in the home, and then Leah panicked and hid his body somewhere authorities never looked. While I do understand that people sometimes stage disappearances when there is an accidental death, but in this case, what would the motive be? Forensics would be able to prove if the death was an accident. I would much rather live with the fact that I had accidentally caused the death of a loved one and come clean about it. It's better than staging a disappearance and then wasting police resources, all the while dealing with the guilt of what happened and the risk of being caught. The second is that Leah murdered Zach. Again, I'm not sold on this one. There doesn't appear to be a clear motive as to why she would do this. It could have been a murder that wasn't premeditated, and Zach may have done something to send Leah into a fit of rage although I'd never read that Leah struggled with anger management. Subscribers to this theory point to Leah having a swim in her clothes to wash away the blood and evidence. But then you would assume there would have to be some kind of evidence in the home. But police never found anything suspicious, and there was no signs of a struggle. I did read in one article the local police found blood and hair in the trunk of Leah's Dodge, but I didn't see that mentioned again and it was never confirmed by the local police, so I don't know how legitimate this claim is. And thirdly, that Leah gave Zach to someone else, either just giving him away or selling him for money, possibly because she was struggling financially, or because she simply did not want to raise a child anymore, especially being a young mother who enjoyed going out. Allegedly, Leah had been accused of attempting to sell Zach's sister for drugs at one point. Another reason armchair sleuths believe Leah may be involved was because she moved to Hawaii soon after the disappearance and was never involved with the searches and has never spoken to the media. Watching the disappeared episode on Zach's case, she isn't involved. Look, as far as Leah moving to Hawaii and not speaking to the media, I can understand that when an innocent person, they might be railroaded by the police and by the media. They might just choose to stop cooperating. 
especially if they've already told their story on the record multiple times over. And she had done this according to the research we did for this episode. Maybe she thought there was nothing more she could do to help Zach that she hadn't already done. I mean, I wouldn't make the same decisions she had, but I can understand her train of thinking here. I think Leah giving Zach away or selling him, it's very unlikely in my opinion. If it is what happened though, I hope Zachary Bernhardt ended up living with a loving family who took good care of him. I think the best way to end this episode is with the words of Clearwater Police Department Lieutenant Michael Warwick. Quote, Someone out there knows something, and the hope I have is someone coming forward to say something, to give us that one piece of information we need. Unquote. Somebody out there has guilt. Someone out there knows something that something happened this night. This is an unsolved missing person case. But out there, someone knows. Zachary Bernhard was eight years old at the time of his disappearance. He was four foot six and 60 pounds with dirty blonde hair and blue eyes. He has scars under his chin and one on the bridge of his nose between his eyes and another on the right side of his upper lip. If Zach is still alive today, he would be 29 years old. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Zachary Bernhard, please contact Clearwater Police Department on 727 562-4422. If you have your own thoughts on the case we discussed today or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to share your ideas and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter Search lives underscore stolen and on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please share on your social media of choice and rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. We are now on Patreon, so if you are able, please become a patron for as little as $2 a month for early release, ad free episodes, and exclusive content. Thank you to our newest patron, Jennifer M. We really appreciate your support. This week's episode was research, written and hosted by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.